Hello and welcome to the One Football Women's Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another One Football Women's Football Podcast. This week I am delighted to be joined by Alex Ibatheta. Nailed it. <laughs> and Jesse Parker Humphreys. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Which is a much less difficult name to pronounce, and one <laughs> that I don't have to remember my uh, remind myself how to say it. Um, usually we start. Oh, you've both been here before. We usually start with WSL, and then we take a trip around Europe or to Australia or wherever else we want to talk about women's football. This week we're going to start. I think it's only fair to start in Spain and with Barcelona after they were crowned champions again. They did so with six games to go in a 30-game season. To put that into context or add a little bit of perspective, that's the same as winning the men's Premier League or Serie A or La Liga with between seven and eight matches to go. It's, it's completely ridiculous. They've won all 24 of their games this season. They've scored 136 goals. They've only conceded six. And the crowning glory is that they managed to crown champions, having beaten Real Madrid. Alex, how does it feel? Feels great. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird one because I it's like obviously I'm a big Barcelona fan and then a journalist like on the side, so I kind of have to balance it in terms of what I I tweet and kind of express. Um, but I was I was buzzing. I wore my Barcelona hoodie uh, to my match on Sunday after watching the game, so I was kind of I was buzzing um, on the inside. No, but I mean. I mean, look, it, it was inevitable at the end of the day, but it is, it's still such a nice feeling that they're kind of doing it the way they're doing it. They're still, you know, high scoring and the fact that they beat Real Madrid 5-0 um, was bitter, not obviously not bittersweet, but just like really, really nice uh, to win it in, in the Clásico and at home, you know, it was a new attendance crowd, you know, all the important people were there and the trophy was, it was pretty much, you know, it was there set up already and it was, it was going to happen whether anyone wanted it to or not um, but no, it's, it's amazing you know that this team um for example you know Xavi said a quote yesterday about how this woman's team is an example for the men's team and that coming from him you know he was part of that dream team for Barcelona he was part of that perfect team um so for a player like that to kind of appreciate and acknowledge what the women's team are doing right now was, was pretty big and I think that kind of sums up um the buzz around this team right now We've seen quite recently, I mean, it's so hard to talk about a team winning the league when they, when everybody knows they were going to win the league. And obviously, the I guess the 100% record is the thing to play for, obviously, still now. But what did it mean for it to happen against Real Madrid in particular? It's, it's, it's a tough one to explain on in the women's football side because mm-hmm. obviously Real Madrid women are, are really 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 new um so it's that that rivalry hasn't been kind of built up yet um when Real Madrid came you know obviously everyone was like this is El Clasico just because of club to club and I agree with that but then because Real Madrid hasn't been in the professional woman's side for so so long you know the the big rivalry in, in Spain was Atletico Madrid and Barcelona so it's like a weird one, but honestly, you know, you have Alexia Puteas, who's a through and through Barca fan. So whether Real Madrid has been here for a year or just like a few months, like winning against Real Madrid is going to win, is going to mean a lot no matter what. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, I think it was just 10 times better that, that they won against Ramajit at home in front of everyone. So that was really brilliant. Jesse, we've seen them in recent times against Arsenal this season, against Chelsea, Man City, PSG last season. I think only PSG really ran them close over two legs. And then you look at the league table and I think a lot of people think that it means that women's football is weak in Spain or that the, the top flight at least isn't where maybe the top flight is in England, for example. Do those games we've seen in the Champions League just completely disprove that? Would you expect Barcelona to win every single game and by massive goal margins if they were playing in any other division in the world as well? Um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it, to figure out. I think less so how good Barcelona looked against Arsenal and Chelsea. The, the games that I would look at more in terms of the competitiveness of the Spanish league would be... Real Madrid beating City in the Champions League mm-hmm. this season and Atletico Madrid running Chelsea pretty close um, last season, even when it was also kind of recognised that that Atletico Madrid team wasn't really what it was in, in previous seasons to show that, you know, there are plenty of, of good competitive teams in in uh, in that division. In terms of would Barcelona win, I, I honestly just, I don't think I watch enough Barcelona to, to be able to judge that. Um I think it's it's almost impossible, you know, to to think what would happen if you if you plonk them down somewhere else. There are, there are various different advantages and disadvantages. You'd have to look at the the shortness of the WSL season and say, well, that would surely help them because they're playing they'd be playing even less games. Um, you know, they're clearly a phenomenally talented team. Uh, but I think you know, I I like to think that the, there's enough talent in the WSL um, that that it wouldn't happen. Um, they wouldn't win everything, but I can equally see that they would. You know, they obviously have brushed those, brushed lots of English teams aside very easily. Um, you know, equally, I'm sure if you looked at France or Germany, the, the best teams in, in those divisions would, would like to feel that if they got a chance to play Barcelona on a more regular basis, maybe they'd be able to um, put a dent in, in them. But, you know, ultimately it's... I think the the task of comparing divisions against each other it like becomes just a fruitless task everyone's going to think that whatever one they watch the most is the best <laughs> and most interesting because they watch it the most you know I feel like that about the WSL uh, I'm sure if you're French you'd feel that about uh, D1 Arkeman I think if you're Spanish you know it's understandable to feel like that about about your league but I think really the thing to enjoy is just like they're a magnificent team to watch right um, and yeah they're, they're clearly by far away, and away the best team in Europe um, at the very least regardless of whether they would win every division by winning all the games. And that wasn't the last classic we'll see this season either. Maybe maybe we'll see, you know, Real Madrid have run Barcelona close in a couple of times in, in the last year or so. Maybe we'll see that again in the in the Champions League when that kicks off again at the end of the month. Alex, what what do you put it down to, the dominance, and not just domestically, but in Europe as well that we've seen over the last or 18 months from Barcelona? Is it... What's different about Barcelona compared to every other team in Spain and every other team in Europe? Is it purely talent? Is it the way the players understand their roles, their jobs in the team? Or is it even more than that? This is going to sound really bad coming from a Barca fan, but I think it's literally just down to the Barcelona way. Um, it's that, you know, the philosophy that the club has, obviously the men haven't been able to put that to work in a, a lot of years now. 
Um, but you literally just look back to the Pep Guardiola stage, um, you know, the perfect Barcelona, the Xavi, the Iniesta, the Messi, you know, all these players. It's if And if you look at the documentary, the take the ball, pass the ball, the players say it, you know, this is such a special team that not any player can just show up and fit in. It's about understanding the club as a whole, understanding the football DNA. It's understanding the roles and, and knowing that you can't come into this team and be an individual player. Um, so you have a player like Fedorina Rolfo, who's come in and has seamlessly fit into this team. And that's not easy to come into a team like Barcelona, who is so set in their ways and to do so good. And she's done it in like three different positions on top of that. So I, I, I think it's just the perfect. And, you know, all of these players, you know, uh, Patria, Itana, you know, all these Claudia Pina, all of these young players coming through have come through La Masia, have come through that Barcelona DNA, have learned to play football the Barcelona way and no other way. Um, so I think it's the big focus of this team is the fact that all these players fit in so well into the Barcelona style playing the Barcelona DNA. Um, I think it's just mainly down to that because once you, I mean, obviously, if, if you like Johan and Cruyff, you know, it's, it's a very specific style of football that either you really like it or you really don't um but if you do it really really well it proves that it's worked um under pep and now under this woman's team so i think it's just down to that and kind of the unison of all the players that are buying not it's not buying into it because they just believe in it but it's the fact that all everyone's on the same page everyone's working as hard as the person next to them you know you have a player like alexia Poteas who's leading this team on um, so it's just a combination of everything and kind of just everything fitting together perfectly. And you have, I think it's the way that you train and the things that you focus on when playing the Barcelona way. I think it's a bit superior to the way the other teams are. Um, I, enjoyed, and I, mean that, I enjoyed the hesitation as you said yeah. that. <laughs> I was like, I just, it's hard to explain because when you look at, you know, the, the technical level of this team is ridiculous. Like, there's not many players that will have the calmness of Patri Haru as a six. You know, she pulls off these moves when she's in a defensive half. Like, if she, if she loses the ball there, you know, Barcelona are, are probably going to concede and she pulls off these moves like nothing. And you have, obviously, Alexia Puteas, um, who can do it all. Um, you have a player like Mariona, who's a winger, but she can play literally everywhere on the pitch. She'll start on the left wing. She'll end up on the right wing for some reason. It's just the individual, the individual qualities of all these players like seamlessly fit in together to create this amazing team. I think that's a good way to explain it. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's down to everything, but I think it's just down to the unison of all the players and being on the same page and wanting the same things and wanting to play the same style. Last thing I wanted to ask you, and and I think we might have just got the answer there. You just brought her up, I think. Who is you? You mentioned take the ball, pass the ball, and you mentioned you know the Javi and Iniesta and Messi and the players that everyone always talks about. But there was obviously also Pedro and Busquets in that team. And with the women's football, especially Spanish women's football, compared to the WSL, not so accessible. The the big names stand out quite quickly. The the goal scorers and the players who make things happen. Obviously, Alexia Podeas is the leading name now, maybe in women's football worldwide. The likes of Lika Martins and Asa Shuala. 
who is the player that people should know more about in this Barcelona team? Uh, that's a really hard question. Uh, who, yeah, who who doesn't get the praise that they deserve? I think there's two. Um, I think Patri Haro is is definitely a player that <laughs> I would have said that one. <laughs> yeah, she she doesn't like the things she does just don't make sense. Like. <laughs> She does everything that Alexia Putea does. You know, she does the nutmegs. She does the amazing footwork. But she does it from a defensive midfielder position. Like, you don't see that in a six at all. Like, a six's role is to receive the ball, get out of pressure, and then play out. Batri does all of that. And then on top of that, she's like, techers. Like, she scored a goal yesterday, top of the box. Um, the ball came out from a header from a defender, top of the box. The ball bounced, and she just hit it on the half volley. Um, an absolute rocket, top bins. Um, and she's just she's at she's a complete footballer. She does everything, and for some reason people just don't pick up on her name. Um, and she's really young, you know. She's in her early twenties, so she has her entire career in front of her, and she's already arguably one of the best, if not the best, defensive midfielder in the world right now. And she's just she's underappreciated, and she's not recognized in all these kind of like. These awards don't mean anything, but like, if there's a player that you want to start recognizing and, and let her, it's it's more about her football rather than her name. Just like expose her football to the world because she's an outstanding player. Um, and then you have Aitana Bonmati, who's also, um, I mean, she's amazing. She plays in the midfield as well, but her her skills are just as good, but she's she has a slightly different role. She's actually really good at, She's she's really tiny, like she's quite petite. Um, but she'll outbody you, get the ball back, uh, do a a little cross spin or something like that, and then distribute into like space. Um, but I think Batri is kind of the the biggest name that I think people need to catch up on that. Well, there you have it. I wanted to ask that, especially with the Champions League coming up this month, and people will be able to watch Barcelona a lot more easily than they usually can, and I'm sure people will be watching the the Clasico. So. A couple of players that people can look out for that maybe aren't quite as much on their radar as, as the biggest names in the team. I want to move on now to the WSL. And firstly, Manchester City. There are, there are maybe bigger places to start, but Manchester City's win over Tottenham, I think it's fair to say, puts Tottenham out of that sort of Champions League battle a little bit. Another game without a win for them. Caroline Weir can't stop scoring. Man City's players are fit again and they're beating everybody in the league. They're beating everybody that isn't named Chelsea or Arsenal. Jesse, how do how would we look back now and judge this Man City season? Now that players are back, they are winning games more regularly. They obviously won the Conti Cup last weekend. What what do we actually make of this Man City team? I think even if they do sneak into the Champions League spot, you still have to look at this season as like a total failure. I feel like there's, I feel like because of how bad they were at the start of the season, it feels like there's a bit of narrative rewriting going on here. But like City literally went over the summer and signed like the top goal scorer from the, the French division. Um, they signed like a, a whole host of like incredibly talented players and I know they had injuries, but even with the players that were available, there is no way they should have been losing the games they were losing. They crashed out of the Champions League before they even made the group stages. Okay, they've now like gone and got a Conti Cup. But, you know, this is a team who have spent 
you know, akin to what Chelsea have spent over the past, you know, handful of years or so, and they've got one WSL title to show for it, um, they might scrape into a third Champions League spot. But, like, even if they do that, it's it's crazy. Like, they're really bad. Like, even this game against Tottenham, <laughs> like, they were still really bad. I just, you know, I feel like what we're seeing now is the quality of players that they've got when everyone is fit means that you can go and win games. But that's not, like, sustainable because it's not based on what's actually going on the pitch. It becomes based off, like, individual moments of quality or teams switching off. You know, if you've got Lucy Bronze and Tottenham are just going to allow her to, like, waltz all the way along the pitch to the edge of the penalty area, then, yeah, you're probably going to score a goal at some point. Do you know what I mean? But, like, that's not because this is a good team. That's because you've got Lucy Bronze in it. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very hard to argue when you put it across like that. And we've seen... I don't know, where do you stand then on... I think the WSL with, you know, ups and downs for, for the teams involved, but the last few years we've had sort of this big three has emerged, this top three has emerged. Where do you see City's place in that now? Do you see that definitely being like with Man United and a step below Arsenal and Chelsea? Or do you see, with all the talent that's there, do you see the makings of a squad and a team that can close that gap again next season and be right there in title race? There's more than enough in terms of the makings of the squad. There's just no manager. Um, I think if City wanted to take it seriously, they would get rid of Gareth Taylor and they would um, hire someone who could actually do something with the squad. And then, yeah, of course, there's more than enough talent there with a manager who actually like seemed to have their head screwed on to, to compete for the title. Um, I think, you know, you ha- I think now I would definitely look at it as a big four. Um, but I think, you know, I've been really impressed at how Manchester United have improved as the season's gone on um so I think they will genuinely challenge for the title next year as I say I do think City have the quality to do it um and I think generally you have to see it as a big four because of like the level of investment compared to the rest of the division even though it has been amazing to see Spurs run them close but again you know I think if City hadn't had the start of the season they had we wouldn't really even be talking about Spurs in this conversation anymore um but I think ultimately Chelsea and Arsenal are just the better managed clubs at the moment. And that's that's the main difference. And I do think, you know, I was unsure about Mark Skinner at the start, but like he's impressed me in the end. And I think Man City, you know, that's that's where their missing link is as well. Um, so I think if they they rectify that, yeah, of course they can go and go and, and push on. But I think as it is, and, and I think this job is only going to get harder for them. You know, I think we're really moving at the moment away from a WSL where investment was king into a world where, you know, now you have to have the other stuff on top of it. It's like we see in the Premier League, you know, Manchester United in the Premier League have an incredibly expensively assembled teams. But we've seen that through poor managerial decisions, um, they don't do very well with it, you know. And I think that's what we've got going on here now, because teams at the bottom, their investment has increased. But not only that, the level of management is going up, the quality of players are going up as, you know, we do really see this adjustment um, with young players coming through who've gone through through academy setups, um, players having the you know the full time capacity to do their strength and conditioning, their recovery, and so you we're not at a point now where it's just like the most expensive team wins. You know, it's obviously that still like happens in some cases. You know, Chelsea have spent loads of money. Obviously, the the things you can't entirely pull them apart, but I think um, investment alone no longer ha- carries the same weight that it did in previous years. Alex, speaking of that, Jesse's mentioned Mark Skinner and the job he's done at Man United and 
that gap closing from the bottom of the league to the middle of the league to the top of the league and that quality being just spread more evenly throughout the, the entire league now, does that make Mark Skinner's job this season at Man United another win for them, 3-1 against Reading on Friday, does that make it more even more impressive what he's done to sort of break away from the rest of the pack? Obviously, the foundations of that were there last season, but there was a hell of a lot of upheaval in the summer and to now be in pole position with just a few games to go this season and quite a friendly fixture list. And they've played Man City twice, they've played Arsenal twice, they've got Chelsea once more. How well have they done this season to sort of establish themselves above or at least with Manchester City? No, I definitely agree with Jesse in terms of Mark Skinner impressing. I think I think Jesse and I were both kind of giving him a lot of stick um, at the start of the season. And he's, you know what, he's he's done... I still think Man United have a lot of problems to solve if they want to keep it up. But I honestly didn't think that Mark Skinner would be able to kind of uphold where Casey Stoney left the team off last season which is obviously in the, in, the, in the top three, top four, top five. Um, and Man United have done really well. And it's honestly surprised me to the extent where Manchester United are that type of team that will shoot themselves in the foot against easy teams. And they've done it a couple of times, but I think at the moment they've finally picked up a few of, you know, good, consistent wins. Um, and, you know, the three goals against Reading were, they were good goals. They weren't just, you know, scrappy goals in front of the goal you know Alessia Russo is well and truly back and she is thriving uh, Leo Galton has has come back into good rhythm and she's scoring goals again so all these things just kind of add up um, and I think yeah the fixture list that Man United has to the end of the season is a really good advantage for them uh, where, when you look at Tottenham you know they have to play Arsenal they have to play Chelsea they have to play Man City and they're mentally tired at this point of the season and you know, Jesse mentioned it on other, on another podcast that Tottenham don't really have a lot of substitutions that they can make in terms of, you know, they have a set starting 11 and when those 11 players aren't there, they're not really as good as, as you want them to be, as they need to be necessarily. So I think Man United should secure that Champions League spot if Man City don't kind of overtake them somehow. Um But I, I think Man United have put themselves in a really good position and I think they should be confident you know, to close out this season and, and potentially get into that Champions League for the next season. Yeah, we mentioned it last week, but barring some sort of surprise, that final day of the season against Chelsea is, for all sorts of reasons, going to be <laughs> something that everybody should be glued to, I think, um, in the in the WSL. Going on to Chelsea and before the on-field stuff, just obviously the off-field stuff, uh, we know that Chelsea are... It, well, things could change very, very quickly. So we, the situation is incredibly cloudy and unclear. Um, but as of right now, Jesse, they can't sign anybody and they can't sell anybody and they can't, more importantly, maybe renew any contracts. Do you? What's your biggest fear at the moment for Chelsea? And as all of this goes on surrounding Roman Abramovich and the ownership and the threat of administration or bankruptcy, what... Do you do you hope the women's team or do you think the women's team will be prioritised alongside the men's team to make sure it's protected? Yeah, I think that's my biggest fear is that, you know, I 
maybe maybe I shouldn't, but I generally feel quite confident that the club will be sold and it's not just going to go insolvent. But I mean, maybe that's famous last words. But I think the concern is is that whoever comes in, look, whoever's going to comes in is going to talk the talk, right? But we know that's very different to like what that actually looks like. You only have to kind of look at Liverpool, who I think are an amazing example of a club who love to like do these broad brushstrokes about how they care about the women's team. But when you like lift the lid on it, it's all a bit. Um, you know smoke and mirrors and I think that is a concern that you know especially as the costs associated with the women's game do begin to rise that that whoever comes in doesn't see that as a priority now I like to think that you know Chelsea's position within the global game means and the attention that now the women's game gets means that it will be quite hard to let that slip but you know over a number of years um, you you never know kind of what's going to happen. And I guess there are lots of like different things that go alongside that. Emma Hayes has obviously had um, an incredibly positive relationship with the upper echelons of, of the, the Chelsea ownership, um, whether that's with Bramovich itself, but also with Marina Granovskaya. And then you worry that, you know, a new ownership, does that start to change those positions? And therefore, you know, her her position within within Chelsea as, as an ecosystem and, and what impact that might have. I think in the short term, the contract situation is a bit of a worry. You know, Chelsea are pretty good as a club um, compared to some in the women's game at tying people uh, down to contracts. I realised the other day that Lauren James is like on a five-year contract, which must be like one of the longest that's ever existed in women's football. Um, but, you know, there are some players who who could potentially, um, you know, look to leave. I think some of them, like John Anderson, aren't necessarily like, unexpected ones um I think it's clear you know Sam Kerr's contract got like done and dusted a long time ago um but players like Jisoo Yun that's like more of a, a question mark it's quite surprising that that one hadn't already kind of been sorted out and you know that would obviously be a real shame but I think realistically you know whilst there might be departures that would be sad they wouldn't necessarily um you know, they would be ones that that kind of would reflect the the change and and turnover within the club. But then the other worry is is if if those players are going to go, how do you replace them? You know, even if these sanctions are lifted and Chelsea can sign by the summer, if you're like looking at players now, and again because the contract situation in women's football is often so short, like players know that they're going to be on the move a, a lot before than than you might in the men's game because you're not necessarily buying players out of contracts you're looking at players you know and you're convincing them to sign on now if Chelsea want to approach players at the moment you're like why would those players like have any interest in joining this Mm -hmm. club when like they technically like can't sign for them and I think that's the concern is that even if the sanctions are lifted do you just basically have like a transfer window where really you can't make any any moves because anyone who's a big player who might be on the move is going to look at you know every other club in Europe as, as a preferential destination to Chelsea I think I think that is as comprehensive as as I was hoping for, and as <laughs> we can actually get into it right now. Alex, I don't know if you've got anything to add. No, I I mean I agree with everything. I think it's it's a hard topic to talk about because you don't have like you have no idea what's actually going to happen, and I just feel bad for the players knowing that whatever happens this season, like they can't do anything about it come next season. For example, you know, Chelsea still have a lot of problems to solve as well. And players knowing that potentially it's not going to be able to be solved over the transfer window, for example, I think it's it's just, it's mentally draining. But I think the good part about this Chelsea team at the moment, especially the women's team, their, mental, their 
mentality is unbelievably strong when you especially when you compare it to other teams and I think they're the kind of team that are able to put aside everything that's happening off the pitch and just look get their head down and just finish off the season um so I think in terms of that I don't think I don't know if we're actually going to see any effect of it on the pitch as much as you would as much as you would expect it to be affected um if that makes sense but I just yeah I think we're not going to really talk a lot more about it until the end of the season or close to the end of the season once or of course when something actually happens in terms of news but I think yeah I think the players are are well capable enough of just putting their head down and just focusing on the season yeah I mean firstly they've won two games now since since all this uncertainty started to to crop up and you could just feel people at the weekend starting to get ready to act like this had had an impact on the players and then well we all know what happened Sam Kerr popped up in the last minute before we talk about that I wanted to talk about Hannah Hampton and we had it a few weeks ago with with Megan Walsh for Brighton how much are goalkeepers raising their game against Chelsea? Or is it just because Chelsea are so good that goalkeepers are so busy that they're in a position where they have no choice but to make a bunch of saves? Um, Jesse, Jesse has a, a much stronger opinion on this than I do. <laughs> I don't think Hannah Hampton was that good at the weekend. I thought she made the saves you would expect her to make. Um, okay, so I hear when people say this about a goalkeeper, my mind instantly goes to... Um, Tim Howard against Belgium in the World Cup, I think, 2014. And he made a bunch of saves and they were pretty much at him and Belgium just kept shooting and not into the corners. And everyone, you like, I think it was a world record or a World Cup record for saves made in a single match by a goalkeeper. And then every single one, people go mad about it. And then it was like, yeah, but if he let any of them in, you'd be like, what's he let that in for? So do you, do you see it like that, that... It was just poor finishing and Chelsea maybe didn't take their chances. Yeah, I I do kind of feel like that. I think the Megan Walsh example, you know, is different. I think Megan Walsh has had a really good season. I think you saw that against Arsenal as well on on Sunday night um, too. Um, I thought she was very good against Chelsea. I think Hannah Hampton um, is improving. I think you can see that the, the stint in the England team did her a lot of confidence. And I think Hannah Hampton has always really felt like a confidence goalkeeper because lots of my problem with Hampton is has been she often makes silly errors like she will just flap the ball into her own net you know um so I think to that extent she did play well against Chelsea because she kept her concentration and she made the save she was expected to make and given her age I think that is an impressive thing to do as a goalkeeper as well to not be kind of intimidated by the the players you're playing against um because it's easy to do that but I do think that Chelsea's finishing was not particularly good. Um, you know, I thought Beth England headed over the bar and she should have scored. Um, Sam Kerr had a couple that went right at Hannah Hampton. Sophie Ingle had this really bizarre one where she got like, she had a totally free volley from a corner and she just literally like, I don't know, it was like she, it was like she was in a passing exercise the way she volleyed it to Hannah Hampton's um, hands. Um, <laughs> so Guru Wrighton like slipped over and just like put the ball at her. So, you know, I, th- I think... For me, it was more about Chelsea's finishing than than Hannah Hampton like being immense. But as I say, I, I do think she's she's had a good second half of the season. There were no worries about the finishing in the final minute. Alex, what was better, the pass, <laughs> the first touch, or the strike, or the celebration? <laughs> you definitely have to go for a celebration in that case. <laughs> um, no, it was it was 
I mean, it was the way it happened. It was scrappy, but the way Sam Kerr took, you know, control the ball with her chest off the bounce and just lobbed it kind of past the keeper. I thought that was brilliant control from Sam Kerr. You know, she made it look easy, but to have the nerve to kind of just keep your cool and, and control the ball like that, it's not easy. Um, so the finish, the finish was brilliant, but then the celebration was just on another level. It was that photo of Aaron Cuthbert and Emma Hayes was definitely the best part. <laughs> and I finally watched it back and I realized it was, they hugged right before that photo and it was kind of like, Aaron Cuthbert pushing away from Emma Hayes but it just looked like she was trying to hold back Emma Hayes from the celebration yeah. for whatever reason um which I thought was brilliant but no it was, it was definitely a celebration and you know I think maybe Sam Kerr got a lot of like you know crap for celebrating like that but it is a really important goal and the fact I don't that... get why she got crap at all no, it's so confusing I don't understand because it's no. like you know if you if you look at the game the chances that Chelsea had they should have scored way before that and you know, the pressure is on them to kind of keep up with Arsenal. So that, I mean, that goal was a, you know, it was whether it was a title race on the line or not, the relief of that goal was big. And on top of that, it's a really important goal for the title race. So, you know, she had every right to celebrate like that because it was a very important goal. And come the end of the season, you know, that could be the winning, you know, that could be the winning three points of it all. So no, I, the celebration was brilliant. Um, but yeah, overall, I think Sam Kerr took that really well. Yeah, I think you'd. I'd be surprised if there wasn't a celebration like that for a goal like that in the, with the you know the way the league table stands and everything. I think, oh, for me personally, by the way, it was the first touch. It's just incredible. Uh, I did also really enjoy a photo. Everyone talks about the photo of Erin Cup, but I really enjoyed the photo of of Sam Kerr just giving the referee a thumbs up. Oh, she was so, yeah. Yellow card. <laughs> that it's was like, really like, good. Like, that was yeah, a yeah, big mood. Go. Fair enough, I'll take that. Um, I saw someone point out that Sam Kerr's two yellow cards this season have been for taking a shirt off and for pushing that guy over. <laughs> yeah, that's like, I, I don't know what a third yellow card could be to complete that particular hat trick, but. Um, pushing someone much. over with her shirt off. <laughs> yeah, potentially. Wh- whatever whatever she, way she's going to find to get herself booked next is going to be pretty iconic, obviously, anyway. <laughs> um, Jesse, what was your favourite part of the goal or of the game? Um, my favourite part of the goal was Millie Bright putting everyone off by uh, playing up front again. Um, <laughs> Obviously, which I yeah, just, we love to I'm talk obsessed. about that. I'm obsessed mm. with it. I was um, <laughs> saying on another podcast how funny I find it that Emma Hayes is like doing the commentary for all these England games, but she's obviously like writing down loads of notes as so she does it because we've had <laughs> Millie Bright up front. She's put Frank Kirby on corners after Serena Vigman did it. I'm just like, wow, you really make sure you get the most out of these games, gal, because uh, <laughs> it's working for you, you know? Um, so yeah, game recognises game between Hayes and Vigman, I guess. Um, the game as a whole, I mean, I think it was just, you know, we talk a lot about like Chelsea's mentality and how much that can help them as a side. But I think, you know, this season has been really bad for that notion um, because there have been um, kind of so many collapses, poor results, um, like an inability to kind of take control of the game or or to find that little bit extra when you really need it. And I think, you know, we did kind of something similar against Leicester where we, we won 2-0 and we scored two goals in the last 10 minutes. But... I just felt like the whole, the result, both in terms of like what it meant on the field for the WSL as well, but like you can't take away, I think, you know, the the, the off-field stuff too. It just felt like such a, like, re- a release of emotion. And I just think as a moment in and of itself, you know, regardless of what happens now with the rest of the season, um, it was like totally unforgettable. And it, it's what you want as a fan, isn't it? Like that, that feeling is 
there's like no better and it was just so hilarious as well that then Kai Havertz scored the exact same goal at the exact same time for the men to win 1-0 and I was just like this day has been exhausting like to be a Chelsea fan but you know given everything that's gone on at the club like it was it was a really nice way to um to spend three hours on a Sunday. <laughs> Obviously that that result and that last minute goal was was a dagger to the hearts of Arsenal fans who Played later in the day against um, against, jeez, my head against Brighton. Um, Alex, firstly, well, firstly, what do you think it does to Arsenal or to Chelsea whenever that might happen next to play second in these weekends when both teams know if Chelsea win every single game the title's theirs. If they drop any points and Arsenal win every single game the title's theirs, would you rather play first or second? And do you think it does anything to them? Um. I don't know if it does anything to them. I know Arsenal are quite happy with having Chelsea chase them rather than the other way around. Um, I think Arsenal are the type of team that are prone to potentially crack under pressure. So I think having the pressure off them really suits them um, in terms of, I think, just an overall personality of the team. I think they enjoy their football a lot more when they're not really being asked to do much that sounds really bad but if it was the other way around and Arsenal had the pressure of not having to drop games I think they would get in their head a lot more and and potentially you know drop a lot more points but I don't I don't know if players really react to them playing first or second I wouldn't be surprised if you know players don't even watch these games and potentially just sit down at the end of the day after their matches and kind of take in what Chelsea have done for example but it's Obviously, if you if Chelsea played first and then Arsenal play, you know if Chelsea would have dropped points against Aston Villa, Arsenal would have been buzzing against Brighton. I think Brighton was they played too bad for Arsenal to kind of had drop points there. But for example, if it was a more if it was a tougher game, then I don't know how Arsenal would be affected by it. But I honestly don't think that the order of matches matters because the end goal is the same. You know, no matter if one side or the other drops points, you know their objective as a team is still to win the maximum available points possible. So I, I honestly don't think it affects them as much. I think they have their goal in mind and they're going to do everything to achieve that goal no matter what the other one does. And talking about the the game more specifically, I mean, Stina Blackstonius has settled in very, very quickly. Viv Miedem is now playing in a preferred position. It all looks like it's glued together quite well and quite nicely and quite timely for Arsenal as well after that dip around Christmas and New Year, right? Yeah, it's been refreshing. Um, I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure how much of an impact Blackstenius was going to have when she came in, obviously because Viv is in that role, but Viv dropping back to a 10 has kind of... It's, it's the same effect that Jonas had at the start of the season. Um, you know, Jonas Ball, um, well, Ida Ball, really, um, at the start of the season, you know, it shocks Chelsea. Um, you know, they started the season really, really strong. And then you got to half, half of the season and people are kind of figuring out um, how to stop, you know, Jonas's style of play and, and kind of players getting tired. And now you have a refreshment of, you know, Blacksteinitz and Viv Miedema. But, you know, eventually that's going to, people are going to figure it out eventually. And then that's going to be another problem to solve. But for the moment, I mean, it, it's, it's brilliant to watch, you know, Viv as a number 10 is just such a satisfying watch on all aspects of, of watching football, you know, whether you're just 
a fan enjoying you know your team playing well if you're you know on an, like analyzing the game on a tactical perspective you know Viv Miedema as a 10 is absolutely amazing to watch the way she picks up spaces the way she you know starts the the high press the way she gets back the ball the passes she's making I mean that cheeky nutmeg assist to Beth Mead yesterday kind of like it sums up how much she's enjoying that role you know Viv isn't going to pull out the assist if she's not enjoying you know it's it's one of those things that you need a player like Viv Medima to be enjoying her football to be calm you know to have no pressure on her back and that's when you get the best football out of her and I think she's really enjoying playing in that role and you know it's it's a big plus for for Arsenal for Jonas for for everyone and and the fact that you have a striker like Stina Blackstenius to fill in that number nine role is perfect so far um, we'll see how long it takes for people to figure out how to stop Viv, if that's possible. Um, but for now, it's it's working well and it's come at a perfect time. Um, you know, it is a tough month ahead in terms of, obviously, Arsenal got the draw against Tottenham last time out. So that's, you know, mentally, that's going to be a challenging game to go into, especially at the Emirates. And then you have arsenal Wolfsburg in the Champions League back-to-back. Um, and you have Tottenham Sandwich in between that. So... I think mentally and physically, it's going to be really tiring rest of the month for Arsenal. But I think they're capable of of doing it considering the depth that they have on the bench um, against Tottenham. They can probably come out with not their you know the perfect starting eleven, but they can potentially get players off the bench to kind of get that game a go at least at least in the first half and kind of see what happens. Um, but no, it's it's coming at a really good time, and I think Arsenal really needed this confidence going into the rest of the month. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the depth. We've barely seen Mane Obuchi or Tobin Heath lately, especially uh, Nikita Paris as well. Jesse, another name that sort of goes on that list of attacking players, and Caitlin Ford is back in the team. I feel like Caitlin Ford is like the most underappreciated player at Arsenal, who's just seamlessly last season fitting with 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 Miedema. and one of those players who offers whatever the team needs in any given situation. I don't know what you make of her. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think, you know, she's very she feels like a very versatile um, player for someone who actually doesn't like play in that many positions. But I think you're right, like in terms of what she, she can offer going forward. Um, and I thought she looked really, really good uh, in the Brighton game. I feel like lots of the Aussies have kind of come back. You know, they obviously had a really disappointing Asian Cup, but um, they've come back and I feel like they've kind of been able to channel that into the rest of the season. So I thought Hayley Rasso's looked really good at, at City as well. Um, you know, Sam Kerr carries on doing Sam Kerr things, um, which he pretty much does most of the time anyway. So maybe that one's not not as big. But, you know, I think it's been interesting to see how it feels like Ford and Rasso in particular have kind of bounced back from from what must have been like a really frustrating and disappointing uh, competition, which maybe didn't resonate so much with us um, in England just because of the, the, the perception of the Asian Cup. Um, so, yeah, I think... You know, generally, Arsenal just having such a wide range of different players is is a massive asset to them. And I think you can see, you know, the energy that having lots of those players back and fit is, is bringing to the side. Um, I'm really intrigued by that Wolfsburg first leg, just because I think what happens there could have such a big bearing on that Spurs game. Um, you know, if Arsenal have a have a bad kind of a bad evening, um, then I think suddenly the pressure will, will ramp up on the Spurs game, but they'll also be being forced to think extra hard about the second leg too. Um, so annoyingly, Chelsea are playing Spurs at the same time, so I'm going to miss the game. Um, but you know, I think it will be a really interesting one to see to see how that plays out because I think that could have a both a 
you know, physical in terms of like tiredness and um, psychological impacts on how the WSL title race goes. Yeah, we've got the Champions League starting obviously in a couple of weeks now, and the FA Cup at this this weekend. More WSL games in midweek. It's just non-stop. Um, but thankfully, that keeps us, all three of us, busy. You two in particular. Where can people find any of your thoughts or your work on any of those other things for the rest of the season? Uh, you can find um, me tweeting silly things on Twitter at JessieJPH. <laughs> um, you can find me and Alex uh, talking for, for longer about uh, WSL stuff at box to box wsl um, And Alex can tell you where you can find her tweeting silly things. Um, yeah, I think I think that's pretty accurate. Tweeting silly things. Um, Alex Ibaseta twenty three on Twitter is the main thing. Yeah, obviously, box to box is where we rumble on for about an hour about a lot of different things while taking the piss quite a lot. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining me again, and I hope we speak at least one more time before the season's over. Right? Yeah. Hopefully. Got to. We'll have to have a once the, the the title race plays out a bit more, and Alex and I's friendship has finally. Truly <laughs> I was going to say, I, don't, I think I'm not, I'm not sure the three of us will want to speak after the title race is over. But we'll see. Jesse, Jesse, and I have been tested, but not. I, I think this is going to be. We've like, not been broken yet. Yeah, it's, I think this is going to be the time. most intense. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers.